So far, as we've seen in the book of Galatians, Paul has not been one to sort of pull back on any of his punches. As you might have gathered, that's not about to start, or excuse me, that's not about to stop when we get to chapter number 5. He's not going to start letting up after he has been plunging headlong into uh, making sure everyone knows that the Judaizers, these Jewish legalists that are influencing the church, they are completely wrong (laughs) through four chapters. That's what Paul has expertly done. He sufficiently sort of denounced every single little creed that those Judaizers might have been using to keep the Galatians down, to keep them in bondage. He's exposed all of that. And yet at the same time, he hasn't let the Galatians off the hook either. After all, they were the ones that he, in Paul's words, they were the foolish ones who had entertained these fraudulent teachings in the first place. Which also had allowed them to spread all of those deceptive ideas that the Judaizers were promoting. That it was up to them, it was up to to sinners to make themselves free. That it was up to sinners to save themselves according to what they were doing, according to how they followed the laws and what's not. All of that was spreading like a virus. Or to use Paul's analogy, starting in verse 9 through, or starting in verse 7, the teachings of these Jewish legalists, if you will, they were like a dash of leaven that had intruded into the churches. You'll notice what he says, verse number 7. You were running well, Paul reminds them. Who hindered you? Who was the obstacle that, that prevented you from running after Christ, from obeying the truth? This persuasion, he reminds them, is not from God. It's not from him who calls you. And in fact, he goes on to Include this little proverb, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This is a very apt analogy for what Paul is talking about. Of course, if you know, if you've done any baking, which, you know, I won't say that I have, but I know a little bit about what leaven is. and That chemical agent agent that you throw into dough, right? And and it makes dough soft and and light and and very gummy. And of course, a little bit of, of a leavening agent goes a really long way. You don't need a lot. The smallest, da- the smallest dash of, of yeast is going to start a, a world of chemical reactions that fundamentally will alter all of the ingredients that you've put in your mixing bowl. And I would, I would say similarly, the smallest dash of false teaching it will quickly circulate and will quickly corrupt every listening ear and every unwitting mind. This is the analogy that Paul has brought forth to them. The way in which they had grown to accept some of these false notions, these false ideas about how sinners are justified before a holy God is because way back there they allowed some of those false little teachings to creep in. They were unnoticeable at first. Which again is a good analogy because... False doctrine error is not only like a viral force and it comes and it spreads really quickly. It's also very subtle. When you, add, when you add yeast to dough, right, you cannot immediately see its effects. Sometimes you wait a couple hours, you leave it overnight, and then it's glaringly obvious. <laughs> the dough has risen. You, you see everything. You, you see the effects of what that agent has done to the dough that you've been mixing. And the same thing is true in the church as well. Corrosive and false teaching and false doctrines, they're not always very noticeable at first. 
False teachers don't go walking around and come right and say, hey, can you listen to some of my false teaching for a second? (laughs) They don't have like flashing neon lights. Listen to my false gospel. They're not that obvious. Counterfeit gospels aren't that obvious. False and fraudulent truth, if you will, starts very small. And in ways that are almost imperceptible. But the thing is, as Paul is here going to elaborate, that any time the gospel is perverted, any time it's distorted, any time the truth of the gospel is made to, to, to be not the truth anymore, whenever you add the smallest dash of false teaching, it always results in tragedy. You'll notice what he says. Look at verse 2 again. Look. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Here Paul alludes to some of these tragedies, when you ex- these tragedies that follow on the heels of this acceptance of, of trying to be justified in the eyes of God according to what you can accomplish, your disciplines, your abilities to make yourself holy. And he begins this paragraph very emphatically. Hey, look, listen up, mark my words. It would be the same thing as if I were to clap my hands or bang on this desk and say, hey, look here. That's what he's doing verbally. Hey, look, I have something really important to tell you, he says. He wants the Galatians undivided attention because he returns again to the the, the controversy that started this thing. The controversy that began this whole little fiasco in all of these churches in Galatia. It was that little thing known as circumcision. And the fact that the Pharisees and, yes, the Judaizers came down. And remember Acts chapter 15 verse 1. They came down and they said, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. That's what their message was. And, And again, what is he saying? Unless, unless you are following the laws of Moses, you have no business calling yourself a justified son or daughter of God. That was their message. And Paul is lumping that all under this heading of circumcision. He's using that ceremony, if you will, as a way to sort of reference the umbrella, if you will, of, of man's schemes. Man's ideas, the ways in which, which mankind thinks that uh, according to, if I can just fix myself, if I can just make myself a little bit better, then I can make myself right with God. If I can do X, Y, and Z, then I, then I can pull it off. I can bring myself into right standing before the holy God. And Paul is basically saying, you can't. But he's also saying that if you accept that notion, if you... Embrace this idea that justification for you comes by way of the law. You're not just veering slightly off course. You're, you're modifying this gospel. You're perverting it. You're distorting it from what it actually says. And whenever you modify it, whenever you sort of add a little bit to it, it's not just a result of, of faulty thinking. It's absolutely fatal, he says. That's why he says in verse 4, you are falling away from grace. And that image falling away is, is a very powerful image. 
It's actually suggestive of a ship running aground in the shallows. And basically, that's what Paul is saying. A religion that's based on works always and inevitably leads to a faith that is shipwrecked. Why? Well, he tells us in verse number 3. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. As soon as you start to believe that all of this responsibility is on me, I have to make myself right with God. Now you're enlisting yourself as the only one who is able to keep all of these little laws. You're saying, I can do this by myself. It's not just one little part of it. It's the whole gambit. Saying, as the Galatians said back in chapter number 4, verse 21, that they were saying, we want to live under the law, Paul. That means observing the whole thing. Fulfilling all of it. Now you are obliged. You, As Paul says. You are bound to follow every minutest little code. Every smallest little regulation. To the letter. Every command that is in the scriptures. In the laws of God. All of them. From the greatest to the least of them. Now all of that is on your to-do list. And failing in one part means you failed The whole thing. James reminds us of that. James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That's a death sentence. So even if you fulfill 90% of the law and you still are failing in 10%, you're failing. You see, this is where we sometimes... I'll confess, I can get this way too. We, we get into this mindset that, that keeping the law in order to make ourselves right with God is not like a letter grade on an exam. There's no, there's no like grade scale where I can boast in my B- and put someone down for their D+. Keeping the law is a pass or fail thing. You're either passing because you're doing it perfectly and completely or you're failing because you're not. Only in this case, it's not just a letter grade, it's life and death. That's what Paul is trying to get into the minds of the Galatians to see. That you can't pass this test. But there's one who has. And yet when you say that you can be justified by the law, by according to what you do, by according to what you can accomplish... Not only are you saying that you're going to enlist everything, now everything is on you, you're you're obligated to fulfill the whole thing. But then he says, verse number four, you are severing yourself from Christ. Very like violent language, severing. You're cutting him off. You're separating yourself. You are alienating yourself from Christ. See, despite, however, Religious sounding or spiritual the language is that has the air of truth in it. Any attempt, as Paul is here clarifying, any attempt to be made right with God. The holy forever God. According to what you can accomplish. If you give enough stuff, if you read your Bible enough, at least in our terminology, if you attend a church enough. If you get evolved enough, any attempt to fill in that blank, to find some sort, some sense of self-justification according to what we can accomplish, according to what we do, is nothing but a rejection of Jesus. Because embracing you have the idea, embracing that idea is sort of embracing that you have the ability in and of yourself 
to make yourself right with God. It's, it's, it's equivalent of stiff-arming Jesus. I don't, I don't need his accomplishments. I don't need what he has accomplished for me on the cross. I don't need his record of righteousness for me. And essentially, that's what Paul says in verse number two. You are turning Christ into a valueless commodity. He's useless to you. That's what he says, verse two. I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You're making him useless, which is really strong language. Putting your confidence And your spiritual ability to justify yourself and to make yourself right with God, you're effectively rendering Jesus unemployed. Because if if we can put ourselves into right standing with God according to what we can accomplish, why do we need Jesus? Why do we need the Son of God to come and die for us? What's the point of the cross then? That's what Paul has said earlier on in this letter. And Paul's point here, again, is staggering. You, uh, if, you, if you embrace this, he's saying, if you accept this wholeheartedly, you're making Christ of no advantage. And yet this is how we should understand the severity of, of any kind of religion that tries to blend faith and works in terms of our eternal standing with God. It's fatal. No matter how spiritual it's going to sound. Your goodness, your virtue is not good enough to make you right with God. And anyone who tells you it is, they're lying to you. It doesn't come from God. As Paul says, verse number 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. You didn't first learn this truth from God himself. It comes from Satan, the father of lies, and all of his cronies. That's what the Judaizers were doing. They were perpetuating this lie. They were fueling this deception that said to sinners that they not only had the obligation, but they had the potential to keep all of God's law in and of themselves, in and of their own power and ability, and therefore they could accomplish their justification on their own. Talk about a very mistrusting view of the capability of man. No matter how much... Jesus, they sprinkled onto their messages, their teachings were fundamentally anti-Jesus. That's Paul's point. Christ is no longer any advantage to you. And that's what these Jewish legalists had done. They would perverted the gospel to such a degree that they had reduced what Jesus accomplished on the cross for sinners to nothing more than, you could say, uh, nothing more than jumper cables that had jump-started their religious engines. Isn't that the worst when your car won't start? It's like always on a Monday morning. It's always on a morning when you have a thousand other things going on, and then the car doesn't start because, you know, maybe you left the lights on or your kid didn't close the door all the way, so the light in the car stayed on. And then what do you have to do? You have to, in order to get moving in, you have to make sure you plug everything up and get into the car or, you know, get someone else to come over and help you jump your car and put the things on in the right way so you don't electrocute yourself. But generally speaking, you hook everything up, right? And, and, and everything is well with your car. Your car just needed a jolt of energy to get going again, right? You, you hook everything up, you train the ignition, and then your car starts and you can get going. And everything is hunky-dory, really. Your motor starts running, the alternator will start charging your battery again, and everything is fine. Oh, or maybe it just runs long enough to where you go and you change your battery or whatever. 
But the point still stands. The car was generally speaking okay. It just needed a, a sudden surge of energy to make everything turn over, to get the engine to start revving again. That's kind of how the Judaizers were using the gospel. They were using the work of Jesus and what he had accomplished for them on the cross. And they were making it, they were likening it to nothing more than a bunch of jumper cables attached to your heart. His work got your religious motor revving, if you will. But after that, it's up to you. After that, you have, to, you have to keep running. You have to keep your engine alive by yourself. You have to keep going and keep doing. It's all on your shoulders. And the implication of all this thought is that sinners aren't just, they're just, they're just a little bit broken. Your, your condition isn't that bad. You just need, you just need a boost. You just need a, a jolt of religious energy. Which is all that the gospel is at that point. But once you get moving, you need that jolt less and less. That's a good picture. That's, a, I think, a good way to understand what Paul says. That if you accept circumcision, you're making Christ of, of no advantage. Because the end game of a works-based religion is a faith that is independent of Jesus. You end up needing him less and less. And this is why Paul, again, is so adamant that that true Christian faith is not rooted in the works of Christians. It's rooted in the work of Christ. That's why he says, verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith, energized, that is, that word, by love. True faith grows more needy, not less, the longer it's around. From right now to when I pass away, my need for Jesus will only increase. It won't decrease. That's what it means to grow in our faith, to grow in our knowledge of who God is. It's seeing, yes, that we don't just need him a little bit. We need him a lot. And we need that work that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. We need that work applied to us more and more and more. It's Jesus' work, not ours. It's Jesus who died to save you and who died and rose again to justify you. It's Jesus who stepped down out of heaven and to set you free from all of the nasty clutches of sin and death. It is Jesus Christ himself, as Paul has said back in chapter number one, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. It is his death. It is his resurrection that accomplish all of that. That accomplish our justification. That's why he says, chapter number 2, verse 16, that illustrious verse where he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He gets his point across. And in believing that, we are made right with God. You see, the point is that the gospel is not an announcement of 
some God-given jumper cables. It's the good news that he has given you an entirely new engine, if you will. A new heart, that's what he promises you. God in Christ doesn't swoop down to merely restart the religious motors of a bunch of faulty people. He comes down to do what? To bring dead sinners back to life. That's what the good news tells us. That's what the gospel is all about. And that's what Jesus accomplishes. And he accomplishes it by taking on our sin and dying our death. And yet rising again on the third day. This is what the gospel is an announcement that it's always been concerned about. This is what he says in verse number 11 as as he terms it the offense of the cross. Notice, Notice verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. The word offense here is that Greek word scandalon in the Greek, which is where we get our word scandal or scandalous from. And Paul says quite plainly here that if if I were to go and start now preaching... That you can be justified by circumcision. If you can make yourself right before a holy God according to what you do. Your virtue, your morals, your effort, whatever you want to fill in the blank there. Then he would be losing. He would be canceling out. He would be making of no effect the scandal of the cross. And why is that so important? Well, this is almost everything for Paul. This was not something that... Paul was eager to do lose this offense because he uses the same language over in 1 Corinthians. Remember that passage? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll just read these verses. You're familiar with them. They're important verses. But notice what he says to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, that is, an offense, a scandal to the Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see how Paul is terming this? Yes, it... It will sound like a joke. It will sound like utter folly to say that the man who was dying on a tree crucified between two thieves pegged there because he said that he was God. Yes, it sounds like a joke to believe that as that was happening, he was accomplishing your salvation. But that is exactly what was happening. That's the foolish wisdom of God on display that a man dying is therefore at the same time the life of those who are already dead. And that's what he's saying to the Galatians. 
You don't just need a moral sort of light to help you get better. You need someone who can raise you from your deadness and from your trapped, your souls being trapped in in sin and death. That's what you need. And that's what Jesus is. Yes, it sounds like foolishness. It sounds like a scandal. Because he has accomplished that in full by himself on that tree. And yet Paul says there's no other lifeline. And this is why he says in the next chapter over, in verse number 2 of chapter 2, that he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's repeating the same thing. I preach unto you the word of the cross. And to some people it sounds like foolishness, but to those who believe, did you notice what he says? It's the power of God. What enriches the church? What strengthens the body? It's the power of God, which is seen nowhere better than in the cross of Christ crucified. Which to some, yes, sounds like foolishness, but to us, it's power. The only announcement that can turn the world upside down and set sinners free is this word of the cross. Which says that sinners are justified freely without lifting a finger because of what Jesus has done. And when you repent and believe, that's been accomplished for you. You don't have to work your way into a right standing with God. When you repent and believe and you understand that you cannot make yourself better, you cannot uh, get rid of all the shackles of sin that you have been burdened by. You can't do it in and of yourself. And when you finally come to the end of yourself and you say, God, help me, I'm a sinner, at once you are brought into a right standing with God on the spot. And all it took was turning away from sin and death and turning to the one who had already extended you his life. Adding anything into that conversation that leads you to believe that your standing before God is up to you ruins the whole thing. That's what Paul, that's been Paul's point the whole time. Preaching uh, salvation by circumcision, which is just an umbrella way of saying preaching salvation according to what you can accomplish. It's twisting the gospel, as he says in verse 1, into a yoke of slavery. You're putting a burden back onto sinners that Christ has already died for. The penalty for your sins was paid for 2,000 years ago when Jesus took your place on a tree outside of Jerusalem. It's already been done. It's already finished. He already died and rose again for you. That's how sure your standing is in Christ. It's already finished. So when you repent and believe in Jesus, that's how confident you can be in what the gospel says. That Jesus has already been delivered up for your sins and risen for your justification. This is the best news of all. It's the only news that serves as our hope. Our only hope in life and death. And Paul believed so too. That's why he's writing so furiously. That's why he, I think, possesses zero patience. For those who run around trying to unsettle the faith of others. You'll notice what he says in verse 10. I have confidence 
in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul is stating his confidence. I trust that the Spirit is going to do his work in you. And that this little blip on the radar of your frustration and doubt is just going to be nothing but that. A blip in the radar. Because I have confidence that you're not going to be persuaded by any other view. See, the Judaizers were literally disturbers of the peace. They were robbing the Galatians of the assurance that Paul had given them through the gospel of Christ. And you know what that earned them? It earned them the fiercest words that Paul ever put into publication. Verse number 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. <laughs> yeah, it would be better off if they just went around and castrated themselves. It would be better off if they just did that. <laughs> That's how effective their message is. You think Paul had... Any patience for these who are twisting the gospel into sort of a carrot at the end of a stick and making sure that people go the right way? Paul had no patience for that. And I'll tell you here this morning, I've been, this is not here, it's free. I've been in sermons where I've listened to preachers and they preach and they're preaching a good salvation message. But they're hanging it out as if a carrot you have to work for. As if your assurance is, is somewhere out there and you have to find it. And maybe you've struggled, I've struggled with assurance of salvation as, as perhaps you have before. And now in my, I can say this because I have gray hair, in my older age, I know for certain, and, and I, I know, maybe I shouldn't get into this, but I'm sometimes like a sermon critic because I just listen to a lot of sermons and, and sometimes it's hard for me to shut off the sermon part of me and, and just, just worship. And I, I, I know that about myself, that's a weakness. But there's some times where I'm listening to the preacher I'm like, you're not giving them any assurance. The preacher's just hanging out this thing and it's like, he's like leading people along, egging people along. And there's no assurance there. Maybe you've been in sermons like that. You've been under preaching like that. Where they don't really offer assurance. It's almost like they're teasing you with the assurance that you can have in Jesus. And my friends, you can walk out of those doors right now and be assured of your standing in Christ. Why? Because the gospel is true and it announces something that's already happened. Your assurance is found in something that has already occurred. And what Jesus has already accomplished. And what he has already done. Don't walk out of those doors not knowing whether you have that assurance or not. You're going to be assured right now. You know, whether you believe in Jesus and you're struggling with doubt. Or whether you've never believed in Jesus. And you're wondering how you could ever live like that. This morning, you can be sure. That's how confident I am in what the gospel says. That when Jesus died on that tree, yes, he was dying for every single sin of mankind. That's the weight of the sin he was carrying. That's what he was accomplishing. That's what he was dying for. Following in the footsteps of the apostle Paul means standing 
firmly on what the gospel announces. Namely, that sinners, no matter how many sins they have racked up, no matter how many sins are on your record, you are justified by grace through faith in Christ. Period. And that's what we believe. And that's what we stand on. And look, I I know, I already know what you might be thinking, some of you perhaps. Whoa, Pastor Brad. Tone down the freedom, tone down the grace, Pastor Brad. If you preach like that, who's going to tell people what they can and can't do? Who's going to keep people in line? Almost without fail, whenever the gospel of grace is preached, that's our response. That's how, that's how we are naturally reacting to it. We get so, and I know this because I do too sometimes, we get so worried, we get so worked up about what the message of grace might make people do that we end up stopping short of what it actually does. We're so nervous that grace is going to be confused as some sort of license to sin that we end up couching it in all of these qualifications and stipulations and provisos that we end up rendering it useless. We end up, as Paul has just said, of making Christ of no advantage, of no use or value. Adding our own set of qualifications and provisions and stipulations to the announcement of God's gospel ruins the gospel. That's what Paul's been saying. And in so doing, I think we also reveal just how little we trust the Holy Spirit to do his work in other people. I was reminded... Recently, I was talking to a friend, a professor friend, and he was telling me the story of an exchange between a professor and a student. This professor had just given this very spirited lecture on the grace of the gospel as some sort of church history class. And an obviously agitated student came up afterwards and approached him and said to him, Aren't you worried that if you talk about grace too much, people will think they can do whatever they want? To which the professor asked a really pointed question. Is that what you want to do when you hear about God's grace? (laughs) And the student said no. And then the professor said this. Then why do you think it would make other people do that? Why do you think you can handle God's grace but others can't? And I think that is kind of the point. That we love the message of grace when it comes to our sins. Our wrongdoing. But not for those who are sitting behind us or in front of us or next to us or perhaps the ones who aren't here. (laughs) See, by grace through faith, we have been made alive and filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And anything that happens after that, all the good works that we are to be known for are what? They are a byproduct Of the spirits being given to us. They are the fruit of the right standing that we've been given in Christ. That's why in a couple of verses we're going to get to it. They're called the fruit of the spirit. They're not the fruit of what I say. Or what someone else says. They're the fruit of our union with Christ. 
You see, the point is, the deeper our union with the Spirit of God by faith, the more we'll understand just how desperate we are, just how needy we are. And the more we stand just how desperate and wretched and needy we are, the more we will respond with hearts that are grateful for the gift of salvation that Jesus gives us. This is the life of faith. Good works don't come from being compelled to do them or coerced to do them out of fear or out of force. They come out of gratitude. As Paul says in verse 6, it's faith working through love. Faith energized by love. Anything we do for God is always preceded by a deep and abiding regard for what he has done. Which, by the way, is the job of the Holy Spirit. Read John 14, read John 15, read John 16. When Jesus is leaving his apostles, you know what he tells them? I'm going to give you my comforter. I'm going to give you my paraclete, my spirit who's going to come. And he has guide you into all truth. And you know what his ministry is? It's telling them about what Jesus has accomplished. The point of all this is, as the grace of God is demonstrated in the, in the death of Of Jesus. That's the only message. That raises dead sinners. To to walk and to live by the spirit. He says that in verse 16. But I say walk by the spirit. Verse 25. If we live by the spirit. Let's also keep in step with the spirit. How does that happen? You are raised to newness of life. By what Jesus has accomplished. And this is the point. This message. This Truth we hold dear and hold firm. That we are justified by faith. It's not a message that helps the the slightly flawed get a little bit better. No, it's the message that rescues the most wretched, the most reprehensible sinners from the brink of eternal death. Because of, what some, because of what Christ has already accomplished for them. This is the news we announce. This is the news upon which the church is built and feeds. This is the news that serves as our assurance in life and in death. When you walk out into this world and you're confronted by sin and wickedness and rebellion and hate. Our response to all of that is, I know my standing before God. We can respond in love as we're going to get to in a minute, as next time. We can respond in love because we know that we are loved infinitely and forever by the Father. Faith energized by love. Love that comes down to us through the person and work of Jesus. Who comes and takes on our sin and our death. And he gives us his life instead. This is the only hope we have, church. This is the only solid ground we can stand on. And may we stand on that truth forever. Let us pray.